Welcome to the Virginia Politics and Government Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Thomas. It's a pleasure to have as our guest Peter Galuska, a reporter for a number of local, national, and international publications in Virginia and beyond, and the author of Thunder on the Mountain, Death at Massey, and the Dirty Secrets Behind Big Coal. Thank you so much for coming. Pleasure to be here. Peter, why did you write Thunder on the Mountain? Well, there's several reasons. First off, I grew up partly in West Virginia. It's about West Virginia, although somewhat about Southwest Virginia. And I knew what it was like living in a coal area. Secondly, in my journalism career, I'd actually at one time had worked on an industry newsletter. It was not public relations or anything like that. We covered the industry at McGraw-Hill out of Washington. And so I spent a year traveling the United States trying to get people to talk about what they were paying for coal. That introduced me to just about every coal region in the country. And then I'd been covering a lot about abuses in environment, especially um, mountaintop removal for publications, including Style Weekly here in Richmond. Tell us what happened in a West Virginia coal mine on April 5th, 2010. It relates back to Virginia in this way. There's a company called Massey Energy, which had long been headquartered in Richmond and is prominent throughout Virginia because it's known for philanthropy. But there was a darker side to Massey. And when a man called Don Blankenship, an accountant, took over as CEO of the company around 2000, he really started cutting down on safety and took a really blunt approach, in-your-face approach, against his critics. This brought him a lot of notoriety. April 5th, 2010, there was a coal mine, deep mine, in Montcoal, West Virginia, which is sort of between Charleston and Beckley. This coal mine was known as a troubled mine because it had a lot of gas in it, methane gas, and it produced metallurgical coal. This is a coal used to make steel. It had nothing to do at that time with powering our electricity, although the coal industry would like you to believe that. But in any event, at that particular point, the international market for metallurgical coal was skyrocketing. It was so intense that railroads like Norfolk Southern, which is also based in Virginia, couldn't keep up with finding rail cars to carry it out. And most of it ended up in Norfolk or Newport News, where it would be shipped to places like China or Korea or Brazil or wherever to make steel, which would end up in high-speed rail and skyscrapers or what have you. Blankenship took a very tough approach with his workers, who was extremely anti-union, and he was pushing everything he could to get as much coal as he possibly could out of this mine, which is called Upper Big Branch. The miners knew that it was troubled. The miners knew that they could rely on Blankenship's demands for reports every 30 minutes on every shift. The mine had been fined tremendously by the Mine Safety and Health Administration for such things as having bad ventilation and shoddy equipment. Miners were working that afternoon on April 5th in a shaft. This mine had seven miles of underground shafts. And they were using something called a long wall. And a long wall machine is a device that's very large, and it runs up and down underground a shearer. And the shearer rips out the coal. It goes all the way down in a straight line, then it comes back the other way in a straight line as the coal is put onto a conveyor belt and taken to the surface. The shearer machine was defective. It's supposed to have, have uh, when it hits a spark, say, or hits some hard rock as opposed to the coal seam, it sends out flames or sparks, which can cause blasts because coal dust is extremely explosive in the right mixture with air. This particular long wall machine had been so badly maintained that its water system, water jets, are supposed to put out any fires or sparks, but it didn't work. So this particular machine happened to hit, I believe it was some sandstone or something like that, and it happened to release a bunch of sparks. Something came out of the wall, it was a ball of flame, Normally, it would have been extinguished right away because the water would have been sprayed right on it from the long wall machine. But this didn't happen. What happened instead, according to at least three major investigations, the flame kept on blazing for maybe 90 seconds, and it was just enough to touch off a gigantic coal dust explosion that raced seven miles under a mountain, even turned corners. It was so powerful. 
and resulted in the deaths either by dismemberment or asphyxiation of 29 men. This was the deadliest mine disaster in the United States in 40 years. At the time, yes. And it got extra attention because Blankenship's tough guy attitude had really annoyed environmentalists because of his capacity to rip apart mountains in what's called mountaintop removal, and also with the labor unions, the United Mine Workers, and others for his very tough micromanaging approach with workers. Blankenship had pretty much already created a caricature of himself as a bad guy boss, and he relished in that. He also was very much a political player in the Republican Party, especially in West Virginia. He would give out major donations. In West Virginia, judges are elected, and he even went so far as to take the head of the West Virginia Supreme Court to the French Riviera on vacation, where they're both photographed, and he just didn't care. He also gave plenty of money in Virginia because they ran some mines as well in southwest Virginia and Kentucky as well. You had this target already painted saying, hit me, I'm Don Blankenship, and that's what happened. But what happened to Don Blankenship after the blast? First off, there was a call for greater safety, federal law, because if you look at the classic case in the Appalachian coal fields, any meaningful legislation, either for deep mines or surface mines, only comes after disaster. For example, the only reasons that strip mines began to get regulated seriously was, I believe it was 1972, when badly kept sludge pits from surface mining broke and sent a raging wall of filthy water through several hollows, including Buffalo Creek, West Virginia, and killed 125 people. It was like a tsunami, but in the mountains. And only after then did they have serious federal regulations of strip mining. The same happened in 1968 in Farmington, West Virginia, when a deep mine blew up, killing more than 70 guys. And that's the only reason you had uptick in deep mine safety. The other thing that happened was that Blankenship came under great attack, and Massey Energy was coming to an end as an entity. It was later bought within a year for $7 billion by a Virginia company called Alpha Natural Resources. And that later led to many layoffs and the bankruptcy of Alpha Natural Resources. Mr. Blankenship, the CEO of Massey Energy, was put on trial. And is he currently in prison? He is. He was probably the highest coal executive ever to go on trial for deaths in a mine. He was not being charged with their murder. He was charged with willfully ignoring and covering up safety violations. He was exonerated of the felonies. He did get a misdemeanor charge. And he's now in minimum security federal prison in California. And I think he's due out in May. For contributing to the deaths of 29 innocent people. He received a sentence of about one year. Yes, but nevertheless, even though people were disappointed with the sentence, at least there was a sentence. Before, whole executives, the chief executives, justice never reached them for many reasons, either that they'd paid off the political system, as was definitely the case in West Virginia, which is chock full of bribery and convictions for it. The other is, is that the way the companies were structured with this ABC, XYZ format, a company like Massey might be actually operating a subsidiary or a contractor, and there was no really strong corporate link. So that's where sometimes the investigations fizzled out. The last line of your book notes that it's still business as usual in the coal fields. Now, this book was published in 2012. Is this still the case in 2017? No, it isn't the case anymore because what's happened is that fracking for natural gas has greatly displaced coal as an energy source. That has really shuttered a lot of mines, and just about every major Appalachian producer, such as Patriot, Alpha, and others, have gone through bankruptcy. To be sure, there are two markets here. Natural gas fracking, ironically, in places like northern West Virginia, which are depressing coal in southern West Virginia, that's just for steam coal, which is used to generate electricity. The other type of coal, metallurgical coal, which is what Upper Big Branch was all about, is a completely different market. It has nothing to do with keeping your lights on. It has everything to do with building skyscrapers in Shanghai or Kuala Lumpur. 
that market is picking up again. Met prices took a dip after Upper Big Branch globally, but they're since rebounding and people are concerned. So that kind of mining is still around. In that sense, it's still business as usual. We see the idea of jobs talked about all the time, and there's also the rhetoric of the war on coal in Virginia, and especially in West Virginia. How much of the rhetoric behind the war on coal is a reality? I don't think very much of it is, because we're talking only about steam coal now. Remember, it's a completely different market. EPA has nothing to do with exporting metallurgical coal to China. But meanwhile, as far as rules and regs, there have been some regulation, but coal used to represent 50% of America's electrical generation. Now it's down in the 30s. What brought that on? Very simple, fracking. So you have one part of the fossil fuel industry really depressing the other, and that's called the free market. Instead of recognizing that and admitting that, the coal industry has created a war. And in a new movie that's coming out that's somewhat related to the book called Blood on the Mountain, which will be available through Netflix on DVD at the end of February, points out that if there's a war on coal, it's the coal industry's war on everybody else. They're trying to have this kind of alternative truth or alternative fact that the EPA and Barack Obama and all these people have depressed coal when in fact it's real competition. And what's more, the Clean Power Plan, which would have promoted more renewable energy sources, is probably dead because of the new Trump administration. How did coal mining, and specifically the coal workforce, become aligned with the Republican Party? There are several reasons. First off, they were always allied for many years with the Democrats, especially in West Virginia. Ironically, in Virginia, it was the opposite, because the ruling power for years was the Democratic Party, and you actually had Republican districts that were not Republican in our sense, the traditional today's sense, but were actually reactions against Democratic conservatism. What happened was that a lot of people voted for Trump because several reasons. There is a hillbilly elegy thing from the book about the white, blue-collar worker feeling really kept out by elites on either coast. Another problem was Hillary Clinton, during her campaign, was quoted as saying, I'm going to put coal miner out of business or something like that. It's a bit out of context, but unfortunately the damage was done. And Hillary Clinton was seen as someone who's not representing them anymore, that she's just part of the elite, the Clinton Foundation, and things like that. The move to republicanism and Trumpism was just a reaction of being tired of everything. People only pay attention to the coal fields when there's a disaster. Otherwise, they don't even bother to go there. They don't even think about it. That's why. It's hard to know how President Trump stands on any one issue, but let's assume that he's a conventional Republican. What do you think is the future of the American coal industry under a Republican administration? He can't undo fracking. The only thing that would make the steam coal, the much larger steam coal, I think it's 10 to 20 percent of all coal is metallurgical coal. The rest is all steam coal. You have to stop the competition, which is fracking, which isn't going to happen. Meanwhile, as I say, the metallurgical market is coming back, so it's not going to be dead. The other problem is, is that the coal seams in the Appalachians, it's really great coal very high BTU value and generally low sulfur. It meets good specs, but the seams are becoming tiny. It's just not worth putting in deep mines anymore to get a seam that's maybe 24 inches tall. In the old days when coal prices were up, it was cheaper for them to use mountaintop removal, which is a vastly destructive method of blowing thousands of acres of a mountaintop across just to get a small seam of coal that's a couple of feet thick or even thinner than that. That's the problem. You've got played out thin seams that no one can replace. Trump can't do anything about that. It's just the way it is. And you've got strong competition from other parts of the fossil fuel industry, namely the natural gas industry.
There's a really extraordinary passage in your book I'm wondering if you might be able to read. You did some great research, including going down into a mine, just so listeners can get the idea. Margins for error are extremely slim, something I realized firsthand when I visited Massey Energy's Red Ash Mine in southwest Virginia. After a short safety briefing and a fitting out in a self-rescuer oxygen tank, battery pack, safety boots, and jacket, I squeezed into a man trip. A man trip, by the way, is a cart or a little car that took me nearly five miles and several hundred feet into a mountain. We were in low coal, making me bend over as I fought claustrophobia. My helmet, emblazoned with decals citing joy mining and a viper bearing its fangs, constantly smacked against the ceiling of rock. Mining machines with ultra-hard bits spitting sparks ripped out coal with a banshee scream as water sprayed to keep the dust down. The electric cables powering the machines whipped about like snakes as miners, monk-like, moved amid the din, speaking no more words than necessary. Shuttle cars moved to scoop up the coal and haul it to a nearby conveyor belt that whisked it to the surface. Adjacent to conveyor belts were marked corridors that we had been briefed to use as pathways to safety in case of an accident. Any slip-up or loss of concentration could be deadly. The low ceilings and limited space made it hard for miners operating powerful equipment weighing scores of tons to see other miners who could be easily crushed to death. Tangles of electrical cables threatened death by electrocution. Workspaces are so small that escaping a fire, explosion, or deadly gas would be extremely difficult. Yet miners everywhere endure similar threats. That way of life is coming to an end in the United States with mountaintop removal. That's true if you're talking about the Appalachians, but we should keep in mind that out west in Montana and Wyoming in the Powder River Basin, which produces about half of the country's coal, it's a different story because it's lower grade, it's less in heat value. The advantage of it is that it's in badlands and the seams can be 40 to 60 feet thick. So it's cheap to get to it. How many people die per year in American mines? It used to be around 50. It's gone way down, but that's because the mines have been shuttered. China is a, a major coal producer, too, and upwards of two to 3,000 Chinese miners die each year. Appalachia is one of the most resource-rich places in the United States. Why then is it one of the poorest? It's a great question, and it's something I allude to. If you have more interest, try to rent or get Blood on the Mountain, which I participated in as a consultant, and I'm a talking head in it. That studies what the coal industry did to West Virginia and how out-of-state companies raped the wealth. They call it the extraction state when none of the wealth stayed in West Virginia. That's why West Virginia consistently ranks around the Mississippi level as far as health, as far as educational levels, and as far as just poverty. Because there are not many jobs there other than, say, timber or working in a Walmart. You'll drive for miles in West Virginia, and maybe it's a pizza parlor, but nothing else. And people, even with a coal job, they often have to drive 40 to 60 miles a day just to get to their job. Coal companies, over the last more than 150 years, have used divide-conquer methods, political payoffs, and promote this idea of obedience where if you're a blue-collar miner or a family, you have no right to question them. And that was Don Blankenship to a T. If you questioned Blankenship, you were fired. And there goes your $75,000 a year job and your health benefits and your retirement. And I went to public school. I'd moved there from Bethesda, Maryland when I was, I guess I was nine years old. It was a shock. I would ride with pole kids every day on a bus in the country. And they were just so very, very poor. And there was nothing else available. It's extraordinary to think about this in the United States. What's going on in Appalachia with resource extraction is similar to colonialism. Well, it's a form of it because that's exactly what you would do, say, in African countries or Asian countries in the 18th and 19th centuries. You just take whatever you want and you just leave the mess. And you don't train the indigenous population beyond what you need them to do for you in their labor. And that's exactly what's happened in West Virginia. 
and other parts, especially like eastern Kentucky. One of the best books about the whole region was Night Comes to the Cumberlands, written in the early 60s by Harry Cottle, a lawyer. It was the first real book to describe the culture that had evolved from this colonial approach. One thing that colonial systems do to maintain control is to oppose working people against each other. CEO Don Blankenship was one of the people who was really gifted at manipulating working class resentment and getting them to turn against the coastal elites. How did he do that? He would do so in several ways, not just against the coastal elites, but even local people who would challenge him. These would be like green groups opposed to mountaintop removal, United Mine Workers. Blankenship, I interviewed him once in the, in the early 2000s for a story. He did not give me an interview for the book, but for example, when he was uh, working for Massey in his younger days, he always talked about how there was a big strike in the mid-80s, and it was very violent. And Blankenship, apparently some strikers, or some people associated with strikers, allegedly fired a number of shots into his mobile home he was using as an office and smashed his television set while he sat there. He even saved the, the set as a memento of that violence. And so what he would do is that it's a divide and conquer. He would always tell the people that there are bad people there who oppose me and they're opposing you. One of the craziest things he did was in 2009, he spent a couple million dollars of his own money to have quote-unquote Labor Day celebration in West Virginia. And he hired like Ted Nugent and Hank Williams Jr. And he dressed up in a, a costume made out of the American flag. It's available on the movie where you can actually see the TV coverage of it. And in that, he was just saying like, you know, up yours. Here's Labor Day when pro-labor people are having their own celebrations. Here's Blankenship having his anti-labor celebration with right-wing, you know, entertainers. And he knows that's going to be a powerful message. But I've got to say, though, on the other hand, Blankenship once debated Bobby Kennedy Jr., an activist, environmental activist, in a public debate. And i got to give him credit for that because a lot of CEOs hide behind phalanxes of PR people. Blankenship is not the best man in the world, obviously, but at least he's honest about it. I think it's inaccurate to say that Blankenship in any way presaged Trump, but you see the same type of culture war misappropriation. Blankenship will dress himself up in an American flag. Trump will eat KFC on his private jet. Psychologically, why do people buy into this? I think it's frustration. What really got Trump over the top were the Rust Belt states. If Hillary had won those, she'd be president. One thing that Trump did is that he knew how to play the populist, some say fascist, way of saying you are downtrodden, look what they've done to you, and I'm going to make you great again. And people buy into that, because from their perspectives, if they buy into Clinton, what are you going to get? Unfortunately, Barack Obama was not able to deflect himself from a number of charges and uh, accusations that he was anti-coal, when what he was was pro-renewable. That all came together into a big kind of white anger boat. Do you have hope for the future in the age of Trump? No. Why not? I don't see that in the last week or so after his inauguration, we were declaring economic war in Mexico. We are getting out of NATO, maybe. We don't know what's going on. His relationship with Vladimir Putin is extraordinarily questionable. We don't know where his income comes from because he hasn't shown us his tax returns. And he's sending out these tweets that make no sense. I covered him at a rally in Richmond last summer, and he spoke for 55 minutes, and I just marveled at it because I counted at least 25 times he contradicted himself in his speech. So I don't know. What I see is maybe a nuclear war. If he brings on all these taxes on imports, that's what really caused the Great Depression in the late 20s. It wasn't just a stock market crash. It was that we went into a period of really strong tariffs, and that crashed the world economy.
That's exactly what he wants to do. So no, I don't see a bright future at all. You worked in Russia as the Moscow bureau chief for Business Week for many years. Do you see any parallels between our society and theirs? I first visited Russia as a student in the 70s. And then it was Brezhnev, and it was just the ossified Communist Party. I went back there to work in 86 during Perestroika and Mikhail Gorbachev, which was still the Cold War, but it was a very exciting time. He was trying to change the system and got way out of his control. Later I went back, I worked in New York for four years as an editor on the Business Week Foreign Desk, and I edited a lot of the stories out of there, including the 91 coup. I went back to Moscow in 93 when Boris Yeltsin was in office, where I went through another coup on the streets myself, ducking bullets literally, and then I had left by the time Putin came in. He's a former KGB guy, and I had some experiences with the KGB, mostly occasional surveillance where I knew it. When you have a huge place like that, a totalitarian system, and you have the force people, it's called in Russian siloviki, which means force people, they don't just go away. Russia had a massive police department, KGB, security, and they just don't go to ground. They just don't go away. And what happened is that Putin somehow has come up with these people and has taken over in a kleptomaniac way a lot of the raw materials. He owns a lot of them. His friends own them. And he's brought back the KGB in a new form, the FSB and the SVR. That's what you're seeing now. I know personally four people, some Russian, some foreign, who are either journalists or businessmen who have been murdered, who were murdered after Putin came to power. One was Yuri Shikashikin, who's a famous Russian investigative reporter, died of a mysterious poisoning about 10 years ago, a little more than 10 years ago. So this is what you're seeing, the clustering of power in the hands. You're seeing tycoons becoming extremely rich. You see this bromance between Putin and Trump, which is completely off the wall. I think it's all very frightening. Totalitarianism can take a lot of different forms, whether it's corporate power, political power, the power of the state or the army. What is the United States right now? Are we a democracy? Oh, I think we're still a democracy, but I think it's threatened. It's threatened very much when you have individual reporters just being singled out by Trump, or he's going to ban people, he's banned the media, or he's going to attack people, or he's going to say that scientists who work on, say, climate change are going to have gag orders or something like that. I mean, it all goes down the pike like that. Who's Rex Tillerson? He's going to be our Secretary of State, and he's the former CEO of ExxonMobil. And all the people are very, very much part of the very system that Trump ironically supposedly ran against. He's not going to represent the coal miner in Virginia. He's going to represent Goldman Sachs or ExxonMobil. What can listeners do to help? Well, I think the best thing you can do to help is do what a lot of women did last weekend, and that's to be active in protest and not to be afraid of this and for journalists to keep reporting and to seek help if they are getting sued or abused and support each other and keep the debate going. I'm not saying that everyone has to agree with each other, quite the opposite. But we can't go into this sort of mindless tweet stage where everything is 140 characters and it's played off the latest emotion. Maybe the best thing that will happen would be if somehow Trump were to leave office in the near future. The book is Thunder on the Mountain, Death at Massey and the Dirty Secrets Behind Big Coal. Peter Galuska, this is a very well-researched and readable work that every listener interested in the coal industry should read. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it.